Good morning. Once you stand with me and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Uh, if you do not have your Bible with you, uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and you can find that on page um, 657. Again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And Bruce is going to be uh, closing out his uh, scandalous series today. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring uh, to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you so much um, that the gospel is such a simple thing. And that, um, that it's, it's a simple thing to come to know you and to be part of your family. God, help us to uh, listen with open ears and open hearts um, that may, we may apply with our hands. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I also just want to uh, just give a, a great big thank you to those of you who participated and served at our Easter extravaganza last weekend, last Saturday. How many of you took part and you served at it? Raise your hand. Many of you did. So thank you, thank you, thank you for serving at it. We had a really good turnout uh, from our community, from friends and neighbors and kids here at uh, the extravaganza. And, uh, and, man, God was gracious to us. He held off the weather. As you know, the weather was, well, it was, it was bad last Easter weekend. It felt more like Christmas than Easter. And especially on Sunday, uh, the snow just came down hard Sunday afternoon. But Monday, Sunday, I mean Sunday, Saturday uh, morning, mid-morning, midday, the, the sun even came out. It was in the 50s. It was relatively not too windy. And we just had a great time. And... And some of those people even came back for our worship service on Easter Sunday last week. And so thank you, thank you for serving uh, at the extravaganza. I really, really appreciate it. And I also want to thank you for those of you that have started giving to our uh, fundraising efforts uh, for our multimedia and music equipment. You see that on the back of your bulletin. Uh, we're raising money to, uh, to purchase some equipment that our classrooms are in need of multimedia wise and then also some music equipment that we're in need of here in our auditorium to enhance our worship and so we're trying to raise eight thousand five hundred dollars and so far we've already raised almost two thousand dollars of that and uh, and we just started that in January so thank you for giving to that uh, if you haven't already uh, man, we're, we'll be doing this fundraiser all year long. There's plenty of time to give to it. Maybe you will give a one-time gift. Maybe uh, that's something you want to give once a month to or, uh, you know, every other week. Whatever, however the Lord leads you, 
Uh, anything that's donated will be uh, just greatly appreciated and obviously needed as well here in our church. Uh, this morning, we want to con conclude this series we've been in for the last few weeks, a series on the message of the cross called Scandalous. Um, and then, as we already said, next Sunday will be our Global Partner Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, April the 22nd, we're going to start a brand new series uh, in Genesis. And uh, we're going to look at the epic story of beginnings, of first things, of origins. And we're going to focus on Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And I'm super excited about this upcoming series in Genesis 1 through 11, as it is the foundation for everything else in life, and really for the rest of what we find in God's Word in the Scriptures there. So I hope you'll take note of that. I hope you come back, invite some friends uh, to come and be a part of this series in April 22nd in the book of Genesis. But today we want to conclude this series, Scandalous. If someone asked you, where do you go to church, most of you would say, hopefully all of you would say, well, I go to LifeBridge. And if they asked you to describe LifeBridge, what would you say? Might you, some of you might say, we're, we're, we're a friendly church. You might say we're a, a multi-generational church. We have you know, kids all the way up to senior adults. Some of you might say we're a gospel-focused church. Uh, some of you might even say we're a church for all peoples. Or we're a church committed to teaching the Word of God. Or, or perhaps we're, some of you might say we're even a church committed to global missions, as evident by next Sunday. And all of that is true. But how many of us would say, well, LifeBridge, yeah, we're a church full of splendid sinners. Now, sure, most churches would never brand themselves as a church full of splendid sinners on their website. They would never put that on their marketing materials. Just imagine if, if the banner outside of our church and if the posters here in our auditorium read, we are LifeBridge, a church full of splendid sinners. And yet, it is true. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of the late 1800s, wrote in his book called Holiness. I quote his words. He says, the holiest actions of the holiest saint that ever lived are all more or less full of defects and imperfections. They are either wrong in their motive or defective in their performance. And in themselves are nothing more than splendid sins deserving God's wrath and condemnation. Now what is J.C. Ryle saying here? Well, he's saying basically this, that apart from the grace of God, even our best efforts are nothing more than splendid sins. In other words, J.C. Ryle has told the truth about the best of us here and the rest of us here. When I look at my own life, I have to admit that even my best efforts fall well over into the splendid sins category. Like the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, I must declare with him that what I don't want to do, well, I end up doing. And what I want to do, well, I neglect to do. And this is why we are people of the cross. Notice this in your notes. If truth be known, we're a church full of splendid sinners, lovable losers, miserable misfits, and fantastic failures 
who are saved by the grace of God at the cross. Have you ever wondered why so many heroes of the Bible were splendid sinners, were lovable losers, were miserable misfits, fantastic failures? And the answer to that is rather simple, because that's all God has to work with. Think about it. All the perfect people are in heaven. The only people on earth are the people with serious weaknesses and problems and faults and warts. The talent pool has always been pretty thin when it comes to moral perfection. And so God works with splendid sinners because that's all he has to work with. And when we get to heaven, yes, we will be vastly improved. In fact, we will be perfected by God's grace. But until then, God uses splendid sinners who fall well short in many ways. And he does some amazing things through them. Which brings us to what the Apostle Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And specifically here in verses 26 through 31. In fact, this passage, these verses that Paul writes, we could summarize Paul's big idea this way. We could summarize everything he's saying into this one sentence. Notice it in your notes. God won't tolerate human pride. So he chooses people who have nothing to brag about. He chooses people who have nothing to brag about because God will not tolerate human pride. Just consider with me for a moment the roll call of some of the splendid sinners God used in the scriptures. Remember Noah? Noah's the one who got drunk. Remember Jacob? He was the deceiver. Moses, who murdered an Egyptian. Rahab, who was a harlot. Samson, who had serious problems with lust and anger. And then there was King David, an adulterer, and even a murderer. There was Peter, who denied Jesus Christ not once but three times. There's Paul, who persecuted the church and killed Christians. And so if God chose only the, quote, well-rounded people with no character flaws, some of the credit would inevitably go to the people and not to the Lord. But by choosing splendid sinners, God alone gets the glory when they accomplish amazing things by his power. So what I want to do here for our time is give you, out of Paul's text here in 1 Corinthians, I want to show you two reasons why God chooses splendid sinners. It comes right out of the scriptures that we read here already. And the first reason is this. God chooses splendid sinners so that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. The Corinthian believers, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, to these new believers here. And these Corinthian believers had a tendency to kind of be swelled up or puffed up with pride. In 1 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes, Some of you have become arrogant. And in 1 Corinthians 5.2, he declares to them, You are proud. And so these, this church, they are, they're, they're swelled up with arrogance and pride. They think they are the best thing since sliced bread. Well, I don't know if they had sliced bread back then. But they think they are everything. 
But God's grace leaves no room for personal boasting before God. And so Paul reminds them, as he does us, of three truths. Truths that we need to remember. And the first thing is this. Remember what you were when God saved you. Remember what you were when God saved you. Look what Paul writes in verse 26 again. He says, brothers... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This word called refers to their position in the world when they came to Jesus Christ, what they were before Christ. And Paul reminds them that not many of them were wise, not many of them were influential, not many of them were of noble birth. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. By human standards, they were the nobodies of the world. First of all, the Corinthians were not academically elite. They were not part of the wise. They were not wise according to a worldly standard. There were some of them from educated classes in Corinth, but most of the people in this new church were uneducated people. Second, the Corinthians were not political movers and shakers in their city. They were not influential. This, in fact, this word influential, it referred to the ruling class of society. There were some in the church who were politically involved in the city, but most of the church members here had no influence in Corinth's political power structure. And then finally, Paul says the Corinthians were not from well-to-do families of noble birth. By and large, most of them were from the lower ranks of society, including the slave class. It's almost as if Paul holds up a mirror in front of them and says, take a good look. What do you see? And if they were honest, they didn't see many, quote, impressive people. Instead, they saw ordinary men and women from unimpressive backgrounds whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God at the cross of Christ. Some of you might be wondering, well, if God chooses the, quote, nobodies of the world, is there any place then for the somebodies of the world in the family of God? And the answer is, yes, absolutely, Notice carefully what Paul does not say here in this verse. He does not say, not any of you, but rather he says, not many of you. Thank God for that little difference there in the letters, the letter M. Thank God that some of the world's wise, some of the world's influential and wealthy people have been saved. Here's the point. God saved us not because of what we were, but despite of what we were. Have you ever noticed that your memory can be a blessing or a curse? In the spiritual life, it can be healthy to remember what life was like before you met Jesus Christ, before God intervened in your life, opened up your eyes and your heart to see your need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you remember where you started, you'll appreciate much more the grace of God that has brought you to where you are today in your spiritual journey with the Lord. And so the first thing that Paul reminds us here, just as he's reminded the church here at Corinth, he says, listen, remember, consider. And this word consider that Paul says, when he says consider this, in other words, it's to meditate on this. Think of it. 
Ponder on it. Remember what you were when God saved you. Remember your life before Christ and now what you are like after Christ and what God is doing in your life and how he has radically transformed your life. Second thing, he says, remember, God chooses people whom the world counts as nothing. Our text tells us that God loves to save the uneducated, the foolish, the brokenhearted, the addicted, the downcast, and the imprisoned. In short, God specializes in saving those whom the world counts as nothing. Look what Paul writes. Look at it in verses 27 and 28. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So who does God choose to save? Well, Paul is very clear in saying that God chooses weak things, lowly things, despised things, and even things that are not. And these, quote, things is in reference to people, weak people, lowly people, despised people, and people who are invisible to the world. You see, God chooses people the world would never choose. And when God chooses people for his family, he intentionally chooses those whom the world rejects. God prefers the weak over the strong, the forgotten over the famous, the nobodies over the somebodies. God starts with the people the world chooses last, in other words. So the question becomes, why? Why would God choose this category of people? Why would God choose these types of people? Well, one reason Paul identifies here God chooses, he says, the things that are not is to render completely ineffective the things that are. That's the idea of this word nullify that Paul uses. This word nullify, it means to render idle, to render inoperative. In other words, God has nullified the things in people that seem to be so important to the world, such as intellect, power, wealth, and popularity. God has shown that these things are passing away. They are temporary. They have no eternal importance. In fact, these things, Paul is, I, I, is, is reminding us of, these things have no, they can't help a person to obtain God's grace. They don't do you any favors before God Almighty. The wise man, in the world's eyes, can't figure his way into heaven. The influential person can't manipulate his way into heaven. You can't buy God off. The rich man can't buy his way into heaven. The only way into heaven is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God chooses the people who are nothing to show the proud their need and God's grace. Think about it. The world admires, our culture admires what? They admire social status. Our culture admires financial success and celebrity status, but none of these things guarantee eternal life. And so the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ here utterly confounds the elite people of this world. The wise of this world cannot understand how God chooses sinners and he makes them 
into saints. And the powerful of this world are helpless to duplicate this miracle of grace in their own lives. They can't do it on their own. Just consider with me the implication of what this means, what Paul is saying here. When the world throws a party, well, it's the beautiful people who are always invited. I'm sure you've seen it reported on TV after the Grammys, after the Oscars, and there's the after party, after Grammy parties, after Oscar parties. They rent a nightclub, hire a security team to keep the ordinary people out. Only the in crowd makes it past the rope line. Helicopters are overheard and the paparazzi scramble to get a picture to sell to People magazine and it's all about who shows up and who's wearing what and who is with who. That's how the world throws a party. But God, listen, God does it differently. Jesus tells a story. Luke chapter 14. This afternoon you ought to read it sometime. It's a great story. I'll give you the synopsis version of it. It's about a man who invited many guests to this huge party. But all the invited guests made all kinds of excuses as to why they could not attend this party. And so the master ordered his servants, well, they go out into the highways and byways, invite the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame, and all the other outcasts of the world, invite them to come to my party. And that's how God does it. God goes after the people the world counts as nothing because for the most part, the, quote, beautiful people, the, quote, successful people, the wise, influential, and powerful people have no interest in coming to God for salvation. And God does it this way to destroy all human pride, which leads us to the last truth to remember. That is, remember, you have nothing to boast of before God. We have nothing to boast of. Paul reminds us in verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. Now, let's be honest. Everyone at some level boasts. All of us here boast. We declare what's good, what's bad, and what makes us unique. And social media seems to be the means, the forum by which most people boast today. I mean... We'll brag about what food we ate and how great it was. Man, I went to Joe's Casey Barbecue, and it was awesome. We post a picture of that with our Z-Man sandwich, and, and we see that on Facebook, and we're, our mouth is watering, and we'll boast about that. We boast about how sick we are. We, we boast, and we talk about how many medications we're on and how they don't seem to be working. We complain about how little sleep we got the night before. We talk about our vacation, our travels, and post pictures of that. My wife is great at doing that. My sons hate it. Well, one does. One likes it. I'll let you figure out who that is. And then when our kids, oh, my, we boast about our kids, do we not? We post everything on Facebook about our kids. I mean, when our kids are even potty training, we will even boast that they took their first poop in the toilet. <laughs> it is amazing what we boast about. We boast about everything and anything. But whatever we boast before one another, listen, we have nothing to boast of before God Almighty. No one can boast that their wisdom, influence, or wealth was of any advantage in receiving salvation from the Lord. 
The wise person cannot boast, I'm saved because of my academic success. The influential person cannot boast, I am saved because of my power and political success. The wealthy person cannot boast, I am saved because of all the money I've made in my lifetime. Boasting in ourselves has been eliminated because we have nothing to brag about before God. If we have a proper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Why? Because it is only by God's grace that we can be saved. Augustine, when asked what were the three most important virtues, replied, humility, humility, and humility. Truly, that is God's heart for you and me. God wants us to recognize that we have nothing to brag about before him. He wants us to be humbled before him. We are to be completely indebted to him. And so if we as splendid sinners have nothing to brag about in ourselves, then what can we brag about? Notice the second reason why God chooses splendid sinners. He chooses splendid sinners so that we may boast in him, not before him. So that we may boast in him. Look at the last two verses here. Verses 31 and 32. Paul writes, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why boast in the Lord? Notice this in your notes, because God alone is the source of our salvation. Make no mistake about it. It is because of God and his grace that we are saved. When I look at my life, it is not because of my wisdom or my intellect or anything else about Bruce Adrian that brought me to Jesus Christ. And you are not a Christian here today because you are a, quote, good person or because you do, quote, good deeds. I, I am not a Christ follower. I am not a Christian because my father was the pastor of this church for 31 years. I am not a Christian because my mom taught Sunday school classes in here for 50-some-odd years. Paul plainly says, it is because of him that you are saved. Salvation is of the Lord. God wants us to know that he alone is the reason we come to Christ. No wonder Paul writes then in verse 31, in his summary conclusion of it all, he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul is actually quoting from an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah here. You go back to Jeremiah where Paul takes this quote and you find it in Jeremiah 9, verses 24. But listen to what the verse preceding that says. In verse 23 of Jeremiah 9, 
where Jeremiah declares, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. And then verse 24 basically says, if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. Why boast in the Lord? If we don't boast in the Lord, then who are we going to boast in? Ourselves, and we have nothing to brag about. And so since salvation is completely due to God's grace, we must boast in Him alone. Listen, when it comes to our salvation, do you realize we contribute nothing but the sin that makes it necessary to be saved? God does the rest. He even gives us the faith to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. God chooses whom he pleases, and he does so by choosing those whom the world overlooks. And if we believe what this passage here teaches us, it will change the way we look at ourselves and the way we talk about ourselves. You see, part of the problem is the vast difference between our view and God's view. We look at the outward. We look at the externals, how one looks, what one is wearing, how one presents themselves, what one owns, where one lives. But God looks at what? The heart, the inward. We value popularity, but God values character. We look at intelligence, but God looks at the heart. We honor those with money. God honors those with integrity. We talk about what we own. God talks about what we give away. We boast about whom we know. God notices whom we serve. We list our accomplishments, but God looks for humility in us. Our view is shallow. God's view is deep. Our view is temporary where God's view is eternal. And at the end of the day, we discover that we have absolutely nothing to brag about in ourselves and everything to brag about in our God. By choosing splendid sinners, God destroys all human pride. And in the process, he glorifies his son, Jesus Christ, at the same time. You see, only God could have conceived of a way for splendid sinners to become splendid saints through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I attended a pastor's conference at Moody Bible College in Chicago, Illinois, early on when I became the pastor here. And Alistair Begg, who is a pastor, author, he was one of the main speakers at the conference, and he spoke on the need to depend on the Lord and not on your own resources. As he came to the close, he told the story of how King Jehoshaphat prayed in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And as the enemy armies closed in on the city of Jerusalem, the king cried out to the Lord in the presence of all the people, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, God. Alistair Begg then commented that what King Jehoshaphat was really saying is this. Lord, we're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if you don't help us, we're sunk. He went on to say that he discovered that this was also true of the church he pastors. We're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if God doesn't help us, we're sunk. Perhaps that would be a good name for our church. Instead of Life Bridge, we could be the Church of Pathetic Losers. 
one thing is for sure, we would never run out of prospects, right? I think Alistair Begg is absolutely right here. Apart from God's grace, that's all that we are. We're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And without God, we don't have a chance. We don't have a thing to offer, and we don't even know what to do next in our lives. And sometimes I think the hardest job that God has with his people is getting his people to simply admit how desperate we need him. So let me be the first to admit, to confess, I am a splendid sinner who needs the grace of God at the cross. How about you? In fact, why don't we turn to our neighbor and tell, say that to them. I'm a splendid sinner who needs the grace of God at the cross. Go ahead, tell your neighbor that. Now, now, if you're a now spouse, spouse, don't, don't hit your other spouse and say, yeah, I know, that's what I married. But the truth of the matter is, church, that is what we are. We are all splendid sinners who need the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to our original question here. Why? Does God choose splendid sinners and lovable losers? Why are there so many miserable misfits and fantastic failures in God's family? And here's the summary answer. Because one, that's all God has to work with. And that way, God alone gets all the glory. Now, some of you may be thinking about now. Well, that was a really nice sermon, Bruce but it further demonstrates that I am never going to amount to anything in this life. And even though I'm chosen by God, I still feel like a nobody. God can't use me because of my splendid sins. And if you think here that you are too small to make a difference in the kingdom of God, you have never been in bed with a mosquito. I want to assure you here that God has you right where he wants you. If you feel average, if you feel weak and foolish, God can use you for his purposes, for his glory. Remember the people that God had used the most are those that have plenty of sin, faults, works, and weaknesses. Remember Noah, rejected from society, but he built an ark for 120 years, and he had no converts. Abraham, he offered to share his own wife with another man, not once, but twice. Joseph was ostracized by his dysfunctional family, and he possesses a prison record. Moses, a modest and meek man, but he was a poor communicator, even stuttering at times. He was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. David, an affair with his neighbor's wife. He murdered her husband to avoid the charges. Elijah was prone to depression. He collapses under pressure. Jeremiah is emotionally unstable. He's an alarmist. He's negative. He's always lamenting things. Peter. 
Peter was aggressive. He was hot-tempered fisherman. He loosed cannon who denied Jesus Christ three times. And yet, God used him in the book of Acts to start the early church. Listen, ordinary people of faith can do extraordinary things for God if they run to the cross and embrace God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is God's will for you, is to turn from all boasting in yourself and come to Jesus Christ, to come and see for yourself how the weak are made strong by his mighty power. See how the despised are exalted in him, and behold how the lowly are made great by his grace. So, from one splendid sinner to another, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you We come to you admitting our need, our need for Jesus Christ, our need for your grace working in our lives. And so, Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you have done just that, that you have provided your son on the cross. And through his resurrection, that we can be rescued and redeemed by faith in him. Lord, let us be people of the cross. Help us never to forget that we are people of the cross who have been redeemed at the foot of the cross by your grace. And so let us not boast in what we are or who we are, but let us boast in you and you alone and what you are doing in us and through us, Lord, both as individuals and corporately here at LifeBridge. And even now, as we come to our response time, Lord, move in our hearts and move to a point where we We cry out with gratitude and praise, even while the praise team sings. In your name we pray, amen.